Greetings and welcome back to the Kogo Pod. Thank you so much for tuning in. And a special thanks to those supportive folks who reached out with kind words about the last Russia talk I gave. There are some real generous people who listen to this podcast, and I'm grateful for them. I'm hoping this talk can be a repeat performance of sorts. We'll see how it goes. I'm calling this talk Russian Political Culture and Participation, Apathetic Engagement Among the Keenly Disillusioned. The title's a bit of a mouthful. It also says a lot, perhaps too much, about what I hope to share in this talk. Maybe this is a little inside baseball, but I feel obliged to tell you how substantially this talk has changed since the first draft of it some 15 years ago. For it's indeed the case that the first draft of this lecture was teeming with hopes for Russia's fledgling democracy. That's how I saw it at the time, and I was not alone in those hopes. But alas, it's true that since that time, it seems to be that my fears for Russia have overcome my hopes. Of course, this lecture isn't about my feelings, for I could hardly ask you to countenance those, (laughs) such as they are. But it's surely the case that the academic discourse around Russia has gone from hopes and expectations for a post-Soviet state towards fears and frustrations about the impossibility of life in Vladimir Putin's Russian Federation. Look, Russia's efforts, such as they were, towards liberal democratic political culture failed. Full stop. And I desperately wish it weren't so. But I can't help but say what I see with my eyes. You know, Russia's caught between two worlds, geographically and politically. Geographically speaking, of course, Russia is between the East and the West. And politically, Russia is between democracy and dictatorship. And in this talk, what I hope to explore is what Russian political culture and political participation looks like in light of the fact that Russia is neither a totalitarian regime nor a liberal democracy. And while I'm not entirely sure where to begin that investigation, I think we should begin by asking this question. What do Russians really want from their government? Come on now, Russians. Tell us what you want, what you really, really want. Well, we have some data, and I'll share some with you. And all of the following data is from the Pew Research Foundation. 70% of Russians regret the breakup of the Soviet Union. They saw the USSR as the time where Russia was great. And many Russians want to make Russia great again, if you will. 55% of Russians would like to return to the Brezhnev era. You know, the mid-60s and the 1970s in the Soviet Union, where Russia seemed to at least be able to maintain the illusion that it was a superpower alongside the United States. 63% of Russians say the government respects their personal freedoms. And if a Pew Research poll concludes that something like two-thirds of Russians believe that the government respects their freedoms, then I tend to believe that the majority of Russians genuinely believe that. It's a data point that raises some questions. No doubt about that. But I do tend to trust Pew Research reports. 
75% of Russians say the economy in Russia is bad, but only 25% of the people polled blame the government for the poor economy. Perhaps I should note that another quarter blame low oil prices, and 33% blame the West. Because Putin blames the West, having much to do with Western sanctions. And what do Russians want from their government? Well, 62% would support the return of state-owned industries. But my friends, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that Russian people want from their government what all people want from their government. They want the opportunity to get rich without being exploited by the rich. They want an equal playing field. They want a chance to thrive. They don't want to languish. They want to have hope. Ultimately, I don't think Russian people are substantially different than the people listening to this podcast right now when it comes to what they want from their government. Now, James Gibson from Washington University in St. Louis did a study of Russian political culture from which he drew three conclusions. First, Russian people want democracy so long as it benefits them personally. Okay, so it's not an ideological love. It's not a romantic love with democracy. Russian people want democracy to the extent to which they have reason to believe that that democracy will make their property more valuable. It'll make the bottom line of their business better. It'll give their children more opportunities and a better life. So perhaps the corollary to that finding by Gibson is that Russian people might just be perfectly content with a one-party authoritarian system if that buttered their bread and put more money in their pockets. You know, I think there's reasons for this. Right, Three generations of Russian people had grandiose promises shoved down their throats about what the ideology of communism could do. And it could just be that ideological appeals have cried wolf to the Russian people, whether that's the ideology of democracy or the ideology of communism. So that was one finding by Gibson. A second is that when it comes to democracy, Russian people are substantially more concerned with the majority rule side of it than with the minority rights side of it. The majority of Russians are ethnic Russians, and the majority of them are less concerned about ethnic Tartars or Chechens or Dagestanis or Kazakhs. And this systematic, largely undiscussed repression of ethnic minorities in Russia is the subject of a future lecture on this here channel. But that's for another time. For now, a third and final conclusion from Gibson's study is that young, educated, urban Russians are substantially more likely to support democratic values. And that's a trend, globally speaking. Younger, more educated, more cosmopolitan people have a substantially greater affection for democracy for various reasons. You know, I spoke about this in another talk I gave, but there was this idea that when the communist system committed suicide or was murdered, depending on how you look at it, that democracy was going to flourish. It was assumed in the Western press in particular, and among many Russians as well, that the absence of the one-party communist authoritarian state was invariably going to bring democracy. 
But that hasn't happened. Indeed, instead of democracy flourishing out of the Soviet Union, disillusionment has flourished in its stead. So how do we explain all this? Well, first, as I've already said, history matters. The quote-unquote power to the people mantra of the Soviet Union has cried wolf. And what is democracy but power to the people? So Russian people have a vexed history with the notion of people power. And that history matters. Faith matters. You know, Russians tend to see liberal democracy as remote and unattainable. Russian people are really cynical about authority figures. And it might come as a surprise to you that they're even cynical about Vladimir Putin, who enjoys 70 to 80% approval ratings. So Russian leaders can talk about democracy until they're blue in the face. But Russian people have very little faith in their leaders to say what they mean and to mean what they say. And perception matters. Look, Russians tend to associate democratic reform with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the breakdown of the economic order, and the deterioration of the safety nets that the communist state provided. So the Russian perception of democracy is wrapped up in the failed state more so than the building of robust liberal democratic institutions that make Russia safe for all people. And my friends, institutions matter. And thus it's really important for us to scrutinize the Russian political system, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches at the national, state, and local levels to determine the degree to which the Russian political system is structurally predisposed to creating democratic political cultures. And if history matters, and faith matters, and perception matters, and institutions matter, then leadership matters too. Look, democratic political culture can't thrive so long as oligarchs and mafiosos and plutocrats and Putin continue to consolidate power. And while it's true that you can't have democracy without Democrats, you also can't have democracy without leaders who are willing to share power. And the failure of Russian leaders in business and politics to share power contributes to this disillusioned political culture in Russia. And the entire political socialization process in Russia contributes to this disillusionment. You know, we have to remember that most Russians today were raised, they were socialized in the Soviet system. And the Soviet model of political socialization was akin to that of the People's Republic of China, right? Democratic centralism, mass propaganda, quote-unquote mass movements, right? Like movements that were supposed to be from the people, but the movements were really engineered from above. And if you're raised in a one-party authoritarian state and you spend your formative years sucking on Soviet propaganda, it's really hard to have a substantial change of heart and a substantial change of mind to think like a small-D Democrat. 
You know, just about 45% of Russians are under 35 years old. And as such, they were educated in the post-Soviet system. And the education system, as an agent of political socialization, pivoted from focusing on class struggle and international class solidarity, as it did in Soviet times, to deifying the rich and promoting ultranationalism. That's what the education system in Russia focuses on. It focuses on what a shame it was that the Soviet Union collapsed, how great Russia is, and how much greater ethnic Russians are than Russian citizens of non-Russian origin. And the media further fosters this ethno-nationalism. And the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, further fosters this ethno-nationalism, this ultra-nationalism. And the church and the media and the education system and the government, all of these agents of socialization, they send mixed messages. They talk a lot about freedom and democracy and equality, but they talk yet more about order and stability. And they send mixed messages because they talk about how Russia's great, but it's always Russia's great except for these people who are trying to ruin Russia. And these people are Kazakhs, they're Uzbeks, they're Tajiks, they're Chechens, they're Dagestanis. You know, in the Russian education system and in the Russian media landscape, there's always internal and external enemies. The internal enemies I just spoke to, and the external enemies, of course, are Germany. They're NATO. They're the United States. And, you know, it's not unlike Iran, where the United States is hailed as the great Satan. The great Satan to which the most educated elite Iranians seek to emigrate. Same thing with Russia. You know, Germany and the UK and the US are beneficiaries of some of the best and brightest Russians who had the courage and the cunningness to get the heck out of Russia. And that further fosters the enemies at the gates mentality of the Russian leadership class. You know, Putin knows he's losing his best and brightest to liberal democracies in the West. You know, you go to Chicago, Manhattan, Berlin, London, there's so much Russian money there. And I'm recording this from Berlin, and if you're listening to this in Berlin, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're listening to this in Chicago, you know what I'm talking about. And that's that language of ultranationalism. There's always enemies. Right? Like all our problems are from the immigrants or the emigrants or the religious minorities or the journalists or the intellectuals. And it's very politically expedient as well, I should say. Because when the Russian government fails to care for its citizens, then they always have a whole host of enemies lined up to blame for what are ultimately the failures of the Russian government. And understanding that is essential to understanding Russian political culture. And it's equally essential to understand how the Russian people are simultaneously, perhaps paradoxically, apathetic and engaged. Now, I should say, it's extraordinarily hard to gauge political engagement and political participation in Russia. For Russia is a large, diverse federal state, and political participation varies by region, by resources, and by opportunities. 
it's also hard to gauge political engagement and participation in Russia because the rules of articulation haven't yet been established in Russia. In the 30 years since the Soviet Union collapsed, there hasn't been a clear set of expectations for political participation. And part of Putin's genius is capitalizing on the opacity of the rules around interest articulation and interest aggregation. And in the absence of liberal democratic leadership, and in the absence of competing ideologies in the one-party authoritarian state, and in the absence of real political leadership, and in the absence of competing ideologies in this non-ideological Russian state, many Russians just accept a one-party system under Putin and United Russia. And this isn't because United Russia is beloved or because Russians feel as though they're part of the United Russia party. And it's not because people see Putin as fair and honest. They don't. They know he's a crook. It's just that many, perhaps most ordinary Russians, just don't care who controls politics. They just want to be left in peace to work for their own survival, to work for their own enrichment. Look, the average Russian is paying less attention to politics and just diving deeper into their own personal, everyday endeavors. They don't like it. It's just that 80% of Russians agree that, quote, ordinary people can't influence decision-making in Russia, end quote. That's from a Pew Research poll. 80% of people feel like they have no say, they have no power, they have no capacity to influence government. So they don't bother trying. Now, perhaps this apathy has played a paradoxically positive role in that this apathy goes some way to marginalizing the radical communists and the radical ultranationalist neo-fascists. You know, and that's exactly what I want from ultranationalist neo-fascists and radical communists. I want them to feel apathetic. I want them to stay home. Yeah, that's part of what Putin has succeeded in doing. Keeping at bay the Russian radical left and the Russian radical right. But the problem is he's done that not to the benefit of the Russian people per se, but to the benefit of his own purse and the purses of his cronies the oligarchs, the plutocrats, the mafia bosses. So under this lens, as I've described it here, we can safely call the Russian people apathetic. But my friends, that is, at best, half the story. Because many Russians are political animals. They debate <laughs> endlessly. And while I hate to trammel in stereotypes, if you have any friends, if you're part of any Russian subculture, you know that at the core of Russian culture, and thus at the core of Russian political culture, is debate. It's Nabokov. It's Tolstoy. It's Solzhenitsyn. Debate is the nucleus of the Russian soul. And Russian people, they watch television and they read the newspaper and 85% of Russians use the internet. 
And until rather recently, they used the internet very freely. But then in 2019, a sovereign internet law was passed, which prevents users from accessing any content that the Russian authorities deem unwanted. In the first two years of this sovereign internet law, 83,000 websites were blocked to the detriment of Russian free speech and freedom of information. And then there's this 2020 law that outlaws VPNs and other sort of proxy servers. And Human Rights Watch has been monitoring this, and they're deeply concerned. But if we're going to talk about political participation and political engagement, where do we start? Well, we start by looking at elections and voter turnout. You know, looking at presidential elections from 1991 to the present, on average, about 70% of Russians show up to vote. I wish that were the turnout in my home country of the United States. And, you know, even in off-year elections, in Duma elections, Russians show up to the tune of 55-60%. You know, that's not tantamount to apathy. That's tantamount to engagement. Participation. The belief that your vote matters. And over time, that belief can pay dividends. You know, in the 2019 Duma elections, United Russia won with just barely 50% of the popular vote, even though Putin won with 78% of the popular vote the year before. So Russians show their belief in democracy by doing the first thing that people who believe in democracies do. They show up on voting days, whether it's a presidential election or an off-year Duma election, and they vote. But Russians also show their desire to participate in the political marketplace of ideas by engaging in civil society. You know, part of the reason that Russian civil society strives to develop is because the citizens need to organize and they need to cooperate because their government simply fails to serve them. Russian civil society seeks to redress grievances with a government that doesn't care for its people. And for that reason, of course, Vladimir Putin resists civil society at every turn. But I want to seize a moment to talk with you a little bit about a couple of examples of Russian civil society, which, while in eclipse, is still important. You know, perhaps we should start with the Russian Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs, sometimes referred to as RUI, R-U-I-E. You know, RUI is the most powerful interest group in Russia. It's comprised of about a thousand major firms, private and public alike. And its goals are subsidies and protection for businesses, contract and law enforcement, right, rule of law that help business people feel like their investments are safe deregulation, low taxes, more opportunities for foreign trade. And for half of its life, one of Rui's primary goals was to get Russia into the World Trade Organization, which they succeeded in doing in 2012. And if Rui is the example of the most powerful interest group in Russia, the most powerful civil society agent in Russia, the Federation of Independent Trade Unions of Russia, or FITUR, is an example of a Russian civil society organization in decline. It's weak compared to RUI. FITUR is kind of poorly adapted to the free market. 
features the successor to the Soviet Union's All-Union Central Council of Trade Unions. But still, in a population of 145 million Russians, features 30 million members. 95% of union workers belong to this union, feature. And while it's been unsuccessful in combating deteriorating wages, and while it's nominally independent of government control in its effort to fight for workers' rights, in practice, the clientelistic or corporatist nature of Russian politics makes Feter terribly weak, particularly relative to the Russian Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs. So in business interests and in workers' rights alike, civil society matters in Russia. But separate and distinct from the economic marketplace for civil society, there's a civil society organization called the League of Committees of Soldiers' Mothers. And this was started in 1989 when 300 women protested Gorbachev's decision to end student deferments from the military draft. And the League of Committees of Soldiers' Mothers has fought against hazing and uh, like soldiers' labor in different construction projects that the government's been carrying out. But this distinguished civil society group was critically important in creating a marketplace of ideas around the way soldiers were being treated in the two wars in Chechnya. These mothers would visit wounded soldiers, they would negotiate to free prisoners of war, and they would fight with the government to clarify casualty statistics. You know, they stood up to Yeltsin during the first Chechen war, and they stood up to Putin during the second one. And these women pointed their fingers at the government. And they said, you're lying to the people about what's happening to our sons. We demand the truth. You know, and they forced the government to respond to them the way good civil society organizations do. You know, another civil society organization that forced the government response is Dissernet. Uh, Dissernet's kind of like an informal network, which was originally founded to expose corruption in the government and to expose academic dishonesty in the government. And you know what they found? This happens in German politics a lot. They found that one in nine members of the Russian Duma earned their academic degrees through plagiarizing their dissertations or their thesis papers. One in nine. And all these Duma members are walking around with egg on their face. It was pretty ugly. Now, in the last five or seven years since Putin has kind of tightened the reins on civil society, the corruption mission of Dissernet has dwindled a bit, but they still focus on academic misconduct. And they work assiduously to try to keep the internet free for all Russians. And as I discussed earlier, that's becoming harder and harder to do. But there's a group out there that's trying to make it easier for groups like Dissernet, and they're called Rusini, R-U-S-I-N-I, dot org. And they provide training and crowdsourcing resources for grassroots initiatives like Dissernet, particularly in Russia's far-reaching regions. You know, and there's other civil society organizations in Russia that probably sound more familiar to you, right? There's the Association of Russian Lawyers for Human Rights. There's the All-Russia Society for Environmental Protections. There's the Center for Business Ethics and Corporate Governance. 
So Russian people are out there and they're trying to make their country a more safe and just and free and fair place. And in many cases, they're operating at great risk. And for that reason, it's decidedly the case that a lot of Russian civil society takes place outside of Russia. A lot of Russian civil society takes place in the Russian diaspora. You know, well-educated Russian justice warriors in London, Berlin, New York, until recently, Ukraine. You know, they're working in internet firms. They're working at Amazon. They're working as engineers. And in whatever free time they have, they're striving to make democracy in Russia thrive. Are they succeeding? No, they're not succeeding. Look, I wish they were. You know, I wish I could tell you that Russian people committed to civil society, committed to democracy, and committed to justice, whether they're in Russia or living abroad in part because of fears for their life. I wish I could tell you that they were succeeding. They have their successes. They're just out there fighting the good fight. And while they're doing that, Vladimir Putin has been waging war on civil society. You know, in 2012, Putin's government created a law that compels a wide range of organizations to register as foreign agents. And Russian civil society has resisted this law with an admirable solidarity. In the first few years, not a single organization complied with this law. You know, Russia sued 10 organizations and threatened to sue others for a failure to register as foreign agents. There was this LGBTQ plus rights organization called Coming Out, and they actually won the case filed against them in a Russian court. You know, that's awesome. These people are warriors. And because of this success by the Coming Out group, a couple years later, in the heat of the Ukraine crisis, the Putin government passed another law and this time it gave NGOs the legal right to label NGOs as foreign agents by fiat. So in 2012, the government says, you all have to come here and register as foreign agents. And the Russian judiciary and the Russian people stood up to that. It was a huge success. Until two years later, after his election to his third term in office, when Putin said, I think I'll just call you all foreign agents. You don't have to bother registering. And in light of Putin's war on civil society, that very year of 2014, there was a meeting of NGO leaders in Salzburg, in Austria. And at this summit, these NGO leaders concluded that Russian civil society faces two fundamental and interrelated challenges. They said, it's difficult for Russian NGOs to reach broad segments of the population who remain mired in a submissive and paternalistic relationship with the state. That was the first challenge. And the second is that NGOs struggle to cope with deepening levels of repression of those exercising their rights as citizens. So these two challenges are interrelated because the first one says that the Russian people feel like they must submit to the state. And secondly, those who don't submit are forced to submit. It dawns on me, as I say it, that those NGO leaders who met in Salzburg are telling us what we already know. But what are we to conclude 
about political culture and political participation in Russia? Well, I want you to draw your own conclusions, but I would like to leave you with a few thoughts. The first of which is how critically important it is that we bear in mind that Russia has no history of democracy. And as we know, building liberal democratic systems is hard and it takes time and it takes buy-in. But we also know that history is not destiny, right? Election turnout is good in Russia. And that's got to say something. And like I said, United Russia won by a sliver in the last Duma elections. And more political party competition could go some way to increasing political participation. You know, Russian people are highly literate. They read, they write, they think, they argue, they debate ad nauseum. The print press and the internet is mostly free. And all of that bodes well for less apathy, for more engagement, for less authoritarianism, for more liberal democracy. And look, I hardly want to position myself as a knave or a fool on the question of the future of Russian democracy and Russian free and fair elections and Russian participation. But Botox be damned, Vladimir Putin's 69 years old this month. And not that I wish him dead per se. I mean, eh. no tears, <laughs> no tears. But it's worth empathically engaging in a thought experiment about what a post-Putin Russia could look like and what it could feel like and how that could impact Russian political culture and participation. Because in as much as we want to bash and lambast Putin, there are 145 million Russian people who deserve better. And most of them want more. But with Russian history such as it is, with Vladimir Putin, such as he is, with Russian political culture and participation in flux as it is. It's exceedingly difficult for the average Russian to feel like they can freely articulate their interests and to wholeheartedly participate in Russian political culture, despite how interested they are and despite the interests they have. That's our Russian apathy. Not to feel the responsibilities imposed on us by our rights, and thus to deny those responsibilities. Those are the words of Leo Tolstoy, who spoke to the complexities of the Russian soul as well as anyone. And it's with those words that I will bid you farewell as is usually the case, my notes for this talk are in the show notes of the podcast. And as always, I invite you to follow this show wherever you get podcasts, maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, tell a friend or two. And if the Kogo Pod means something to you and you have the means to give a few, maybe head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash Pod. You don't have to. And if you're my student, please don't. But if you're out there listening and this podcast is doing something for you, 
and you have the means to support independent creators, head on over there. I'll link to it in the show notes. And with all that, I wish you health. I wish you wellness. Please take care, and I'll talk at you soon.